Father God, we thank you for this time that you have given to us. And we ask, dear Lord, that you receive us now as your people. We ask that you teach us. We ask that you bless us with your word. We ask that you use me. Not just in using me to speak, but using me to hear. Use me to listen. Use me, dear Lord, to touch the hearts of all who hear this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Today's subject is coming from, again, the book of the letter to the Thessalonians. I want to say this first. When the people who mine precious metals or precious stones, they are in a mountain, so to speak, and they stay in that mountain mining the nuggets that comes from that mountain. And the epistle to the Thessalonians is one of those mountains where there are many and I mean many nuggets that God has left for us. Let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 through 6. It reads, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before our God and Father your works of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, brethren, beloved by God, that he has chosen you because of our gospel, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul penned these letters 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, as we would see in our Bible. But in 1 Thessalonians, he's writing this letter to a young church, encouraging these disciples who had suffered and were still suffering that they were not alone in their afflictions. You see, Paul, like Jesus, was no stranger to affliction, something this young church would know, something this young church could attest to because they saw firsthand in their synagogue and in their streets, in their cities. See, their synagogue, the leaders were persecuting them also as they persecuted Paul. And in the streets, 
they drug or dragged Jason out in the streets and they were beaten. So this church was no stranger to persecution. And Paul is writing to them, encouraging them about imitation, imitating, imitating Christ and imitating himself. And he writes in verse 6, and he says, you and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Let me make a statement here because Paul presented this to us. He presented a statement for us. Every disciple should imitate Christ. Again, every disciple should imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul places the Thessalonians, this young church, in the company of Jesus, whom they were now following by faith as king, high priest, and lord, showing them that their affliction, in a real way, is directly related to Jesus. I'm sure that we will all remember these words because we've already read them. And it's Jesus speaking, John chapter 15, verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you is, the word that I said to you, his servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If you keep my word, they will also if they keep my word, they will also keep yours. We know from the biblical account of the harassment, persecution, and the ultimate death of Jesus. We read Matthew's account, Matthew 12. Jesus healed a man who was demon-oppressed, blind, a mute. For us, reading this text and looking at it, we will say this was a good thing. But when you look a little closer in that text, you will see a statement that reads, can this be the son of David? This was a question that was considered by the people they're considered as if this was the promise of God. And yet, a little further down in that same chapter, he was deemed by the religious leaders a demon, Beelzebub. We read Mark's account that the religious leaders deliberately set out to test him. You can see that down in Mark 8, 11. Luke now tells us that the elders and the high priests or the religious leaders 
and the elders met at the high priest's house in a plot to kill Jesus. John, John 19 tells us that ultimately he was put to death. This is persecution and ultimately death. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, laid out a litany of persecution, things that he went through. And while I'm reading this, Paul's account, I had to ask myself, when he speaks of his beatings, could I have endured the 39 lashes? One, just one set of beatings, that 39 lashes that when you are hit or struck, flesh comes with it. It rips away the flesh. Could I have endured that? And I kept pondering on that. But when I read further, and you look at it, Paul was beaten five times. It never stopped him. You know, he says in that account how hungry he was. And I know that we can all say at some point in time we are hungry, but we have that, or we are living in a time with creature comforts that we can go to the fridge, we can go to the cupboard and get something, even if it's a cup of tea. But imagine living in a space where you don't know where you're going to get food from or when you're going to get food or how you're going to get food. This is what Paul is saying. You know, I've, hear, I've heard, and I know I, I'm going to hear it even more, uh, people say it to me, or they'll say it out loud, I'm no good when I don't get my coffee in the morning. Could you imagine not knowing where that cup is coming from? These are the comforts that we have today. I don't think we fully understand what it means when Paul said he was hungry. Because we have creature comforts. Many of us will never know what persecution really is. Because of the place we live and the environment we live in. We are really far removed from persecution as it relates to biblical persecution. And now, in today's world, today's persecution. Now, let me clarify here. I, I listened to a number of news reports, and um, people are speaking of being persecuted because they're Christians. Well, we have to be very careful when we hear reports of people who speak of being persecuted because of being Christian. You cannot, as a leader, have an affair with, a, with someone's wife and you're confronted in the church and something happens. That is not persecution. That is outside. That is sinful. You cannot go to work. I cannot go to work 
and on the company's time I'm evangelizing, I should be working. That's what I'm being paid for. And if there's repercussions for my actions, I cannot say that I'm being persecuted, or I should not say that I'm being persecuted. Now, if on my time, I'm evangelizing, that is my time. But that is not the company's time. That is not one being paid for. So we have to be very careful when we see notes of persecution throughout the Christian community. A couple of years back, a young man drove his car many miles to a town, small town, and shot up the church. Why? Because he had a beef. He had a problem with his mother-in-law. And he thought she was at church that day. She wasn't. That is not persecution. That is outside of persecution. That is not biblical persecution. Biblical persecution finds its root in Christ and the gospel. That's where biblical persecution is. It is within the gospel of itself, within Christ of itself. So, when we look at persecution, we are being persecuted for Christ and for the gospel. Let me read something to you. And it reads, and I want to say this, Last week, Pastor spoke on this same verse out of Mark, Matthew, 10, Matthew 5, verse 10. And he speaks, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's the key on Jesus' account. And this is where we need to put the emphasis when it comes to persecution on Jesus' account. The blessings that comes with this blessed are you is on Jesus' account. The reward is on Jesus' account. And the persecution is on Jesus' account. So as I stated earlier, many of us will never experience persecution. We will never be able to imitate or be imitators of persecution in the way that Jesus and Paul and the apostles did at that time. However, persecution is not the only way to be imitators of Jesus and of those of the early church. We have to look at all aspects of the life of Jesus because this is the ultimate blueprint for the way in which we should live. It makes it clear to all disciples, and not what I'm saying, I'm not saying all Christians, because I stopped using that word Christian. I use the word disciple. And the reason for that is because anyone can label the term Christian in front of whatever they want. So if we have 
someone who is homosexual. I'm sorry, but I have to say that someone who is homosexual, who is homosexual, can say I'm a Christian. That doesn't go well with what the scripture teaches. So I have to say a disciple, because a disciple now, if you are an apprentice under a skillful craftsman, you are going to be like the craftsman. You are going to adopt the attributes and the ethics of that craftsman. So you become a disciple, a follower. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then you will take up that cross and follow him. So a disciple become an imitator of Jesus and be becoming him becoming the blueprint for us, we can see that this will come through prayer. If you notice, just by Jesus' life, he was a man of prayer. And if we are committed to imitate Jesus, then we should cultivate a life of prayer. I'm going to ask us actually four questions. And I'm asking these rhetorically. And we're going to answer these questions as it comes to us. Do you know that prayer is a relationship that the followers of Jesus should cultivate? In other words, we all should cultivate a life of prayer. Do you know that prayer is taught by him who we are praying to? Do you know that when we have a life of prayer, we are in the company of the Old Testament, the New Testament, disciples of God, who understood that he was the creator of heaven and earth and all therein. So we're in good company. And lastly, do you know that when we pray, when we are in prayer, we build up a defense against sin and temptation? When you get a chance, you can read the account of Abraham from Genesis 12. And you'll see this phrase throughout the account. And the Lord said to Abraham, and you will also see some, some responses from Abraham. And these phrases and responses creates a dialogue between God and Abraham. And as you know, it is said that Abraham was the friend of God. But in order to be a friend, there have to be dialogue, there have to be communication. You have to know who you're talking to. The prophet in Kings, and this is Elijah, 
Kings, 2 Kings chapter 6, 17 to 20. He prayed to God to open the eyes of the servant that he could see. Not because the servant was physically blind, but because God was the only one who could open the servant's eyes to see what was there. And we can't do that without communication. The prophet did that because he communed with God. There was a relationship with God. This is what prayer does. We build a relationship. We cultivate a relationship with God. These men cultivated that relationship by prayer. They set the example for us to follow. Jesus himself, our Lord, he demonstrated to us the relationship with God the Father through prayer. We could say that he was the embodiment of prayer. He prayed constantly, whether it was early or it was late. He gave respect to the law as he went to temple. But he set aside time to commune personally with the Father. The very blueprint that we have today. Paul stated in his letters, in this very letter, he tells the Thessalonians how he always thanked God for them when he prayed. In this very letter, chapter 5, he says, pray without ceasing. Pray continually, he says. But this is now for us. This is the life he's telling us to live. Pray continually. Cultivate that relationship with God. Because this is a way we build a healthy relationship with the God who has called us. And there is no healthy relationship without cultivating a life of prayer. There is no healthy relationship without communication with God. I want you guys to go with me Take your Bibles and go with me to Psalm 119, 33 to 40. Psalm 119, 33 to 40. And I want all of us to engage in this text. Lord, teach me the way of your statue, and I will keep them to the end. Grant me insight that I may keep you, that I may keep your law and observe it wholeheartedly. Guide me in the path of your commands, for in them is my delight. Bend my heart to your decree and not to wrongful gain. Turn my eyes from gazing on vanity. 
in your way, in your way, give me life. Fulfill your promise to your servant that you may be revered, revered. Turn away the taunts I dread, for your decrees are good. See, I long for your precepts. Give me life by your righteousness. This is a prayer that is set in our scriptures. It is a prayer that when you look at it, it carries the personal pronoun I. And this can be appropriated for any one of us at any time. God teaches us what to pray. He instructs us how to pray. It doesn't matter the depth of your vocabulary. We can go to the scriptures and appropriate the prayers of the scriptures to the very God that has given, this, has given to us. We have prayers at our fingertips. There's no reason for us to be trying to try to scratch our brains to reinvent the wheel. What you'll see is he has taught us or he's teaching us to pray. But not only throughout the Psalms, we can see him preaching or teaching us how to pray. When you take 2 Samuel, you'll find there prayer in asking for forgiveness. Jesus now teaches us how to pray. Our God teaches us how to pray. In Matthew, he tells us, Matthew 6, 6, he says, when we pray, Go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And the father who is in secret will reward you. This is us being taught by God how to pray. We know from the book of Acts that prayer was a big part of the foundation of the early church. In Acts 3, Peter and John, they were going up to the temple to pray. Acts 4, Peter and John and others were found praying. And again, part of that prayer in Acts 4 is out of Psalms 2. When we believe what we read and we are saying back to Jesus, back to, back to our Lord, then it becomes our prayer. In Psalms 2, Peter and the people who were with him at that time, part of that prayer was, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? you'll find that statement in Psalms 2. It is part of a prayer in Psalms 2. Again, it does not matter how deep your vocabulary is. It just matters 
how much you believe in God. Prayer. Prayer places us in the company of the family of God. And not just throughout the family of God in the past, like in biblical history, but then into the future. Genesis tells us that Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so they can have children again. And this is Genesis 20, 17. We know that Elijah prayed to God for no rain. A rain did not fall for over three years. This is Kings 17. And we know that in Kings 18, Elijah prayed for rain, and it rained. See the family that we're in? Psalms 86. We see David praying a prayer that anyone can appropriate. We can pick any of the four Gospels and record it, and there are many recorded accounts of Jesus praying to the Father. So we have a blueprint from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, to us. It is now for us to appropriate what has been presented to us and use it as God has ordained or mandated. There is also the account of him teaching us how to pray. Don't forget Paul throughout his letters. I would say just about one letter, the letter to the Galatians, but the rest you'll find that Paul is giving thanks for these churches. Prayer was part of his life. And I speak about building up a defense against temptation and sin. This prayer, part of this prayer, this line in this prayer from the Lord's Prayer, it says, deliver us from evil. This is a defense against temptation and sin. You can see Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30, 7. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 to 9. And it says here, Two things I ask of you. This is the Solomon asking God for two things. Deny me not. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from remove far from me falsehood and lying. 
give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Least I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or least I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. These are all examples of that blueprint that we should follow. Having our God, praying to our God, turning to our God, tells us that when we turn to him, he is the one who defends us from temptation and sin. You'll find that in Galatians, Galatians 16 to 17. You'll also find that in Isaiah. And now, Isaiah, this is God speaking in Isaiah. So this is not Isaiah speaking. God says to his people, which would include us, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other you can't want a better defense against temptation and sin than the God who can save he says turn to me and be saved that's the God that we serve and we have Jesus, and I heard this earlier this afternoon, we have Jesus who said, here's the proof. He says, Peter, I prayed for your protection. Something that didn't happen yet, but Jesus prayed for him. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Who can want a better protector than this? A God that will protect us. A God that will keep us from temptation and sin. And as we seek to imitate or Lord through the life of prayer. Let us also examine his life to imitate. Let us also become imitators of Christ. Amen. Thank you for your listening ears. I pray that God has blessed us and has given us his word that we will attach to our hearts and place at the forefront of our minds to become imitators of him and him only. We ask, dear Lord, that you bless this message as only you can. I ask that you bless us now that we will hear, understand, and abide by your laws and your precepts 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Or him, closing him.